0: everyone this is Caleb and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the learner's corner and today I'm honored to be joined by returning guest Tim Elmore to talk with him about his brand new book called a new kind of diversity making the different generations on your team a competitive advantage now if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast or whether or not you've been listening for a while and you want to to stroke the fire or stoke the fire of curiosity and learning one of the best things that you could do subscribe to my newsletter to where i give you all of the things that i'm thinking about right now from books to documentaries to articles to podcasts to youtube videos to sometimes even music that has just got me thinking as well and i send that out each week, and it's just the things that are capturing my attention, capturing my, my my imagination, my curiosity, and that'll just get delivered. And so if you're looking for new things to learn from or new things to learn about, subscribe to the newsletter. It is right in the show notes. Also, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations And today we're going to be talking about one of those conversations that doesn't get talked about. It gets talked about a ton, but it's more in a uh, a stereotypical way and not necessarily a productive conversation. And that's how do you manage this tension between generations, particularly in the workplace? Now, the other thing is, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone in this case, no matter how older or how much older or how much younger or how much less experience they may have or how much that they may just make us mad we can learn something from them and we can learn something from anything and from everything whether it's something serious or something more fun and we do that because we want to be the person who was there for us maybe the mentor that we had who was a lot you know a lot older than we were but they just decided to take time out of their day or maybe you wish that you had that person Well, we want to be that person for the future generation as well for the people coming after us so that we can help them go further and faster than we were ever able to go. And so we're going to talk about some of that stuff today with Tim. Let me tell you a little bit about him and then we will go right into my conversation with him. So Dr. Tim Elmore is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders in in Atlanta an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. Since founding Growing Leaders, he has spoken to more than 500,000 students, faculty, and staff on hundreds of campuses across the country and many different sports teams as well and government offices in Washington, D.C. From the classroom to the boardroom, he has... He is a dynamic communicator who uses principles, images, and stories to strengthen leaders. He has taught at Delta Global Services, Chick-fil-A, the Home Depot, the John Maxwell Company, and many others as well. And he is—he has taught courses on leadership and mentored at nine different universities and graduate schools across the U.S., committed to developing young leaders on every continent of the world. And literally across and across the globe as well in Indiana or Indiana, India, Russia, China, and Australia. His expertise on emerging generations and generational diversity in the workplace has led to media coverage in all of many different places, from Forbes to the Huffington Post to MSNBC, the Washington Post, and so on and so forth. And today we're going to talk with him about his most recent book, a brand new kind of diversity, a new kind of diversity, making the different generations on your team a competitive advantage. And here is our conversation. Well, Tim, it's good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast. Thank you, Kate. Great to be with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the questions or one of the things that I normally like to start with is I would just love to hear the origin story for this book. I know you were mentioning it just a couple of minutes ago. Guys, this has been like a literally a decade's work for you. Yeah, And so would you mind just telling a little bit about that story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It has been a fun journey, but it's been like birthing a baby. Uh, many authors will say that, but, you know, there's this gestation period where it's forming inside the womb of your mind and uh, giving birth. There are labor pains for sure. But um, I, I'm i excited because in many ways, this is a bit of a capstone piece for me. Uh, it has been two or three decades in the making as I've studied different generations, starting with boomers and Xers as we were all coming through the pike. and then. Millennials came along and then Gen Z and now the alpha generation. Those are the youngest Mm -hmm. children that we're measuring today. So, Caleb, this is amazing, probably for your listeners. Uh, For the first time in modern history, there are seven different generations alive and well on planet Earth, Mm -hmm. Uh, not two or three, seven. Uh, So, you know, we are we are going to have to learn about the paradigms and the mindsets that we that we all have or we're not going to be able to bring out the very best in each one. So that's what that, that's what the book is all about, really.
0: Yeah. I would love to hear, you know, over the past couple of decades, what has, like, how has your mind changed, you know, from like 20, 30 years ago to today?
1: Yeah. Well, I started aging. Well, we're all aging, but I mean, I started noticing the signs of aging uh, probably 15 years ago and i started uh spotting that i was getting a little bit frustrated with young people Uh, and that's probably true for anybody over 45 or 50 years old but i didn't like it and i thought i remember when i was the emerging generation and now i've emerged Mm -hmm. you know and i'm no longer emerging um and i thought i do not want this to happen to me so as i began to study and i've always worked with younger people uh since 1979 i began teaching uh, students, high school students, and college students. Um, I started noticing every new generation brings something unique to the table, but very often, once you get past 45 or 50 years old, you just get stubborn. You get set in your ways. Uh, the the wet cement that well, or the wet cement that once was wet so that you could press your handprint into is now hardened, and you know you just don't want to change anymore. So I feel like if indeed we could lead a team that had Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and we were pulling out the the stories and the wisdom of the Boomers, the contrarian thoughts and the pragmatism of the Xers, the idealism and the hope of the Millennials, and the hacker mindset and entrepreneurial spirit of the Gen Zers, we could have a team it could be amazing where the shortstop and the first baseman and the left fielder are all playing their positions. And it works to, we work together rather than, rather than having those frustrating conversations around the water cooler where, you know, kids today, kids today, you know, and we just don't, we start thinking that our whole purpose is to tolerate each other. And I just feel like that's Set in a very low bar.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned it briefly, but you talked about the unique contribution that each generation brings to yeah. the table. Can you kind of you know walk through that a little bit yeah. more? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the new kind
1: of diversity, that's the name of the book, A New Kind of Diversity, and it's about generational diversity, not ethnic or gender or income mm-hmm. diversity. But um, I studied each of the five generations that might be still working together today. And I found that while people are people, we're humans, we're all humans, there are unique contributions based on the years that shaped us uh, as we grew up, the first couple of decades. So our neural pathways are shaped and formed in the first 20 to 25 years. And kind of like that metaphor I just used, the wet cement, it hardens. And it's not that you can't change a sidewalk after a year or two, but but it, it requires a jackhammer you know, to get yeah. that thing. So the the builder generation, that would be my parents' generation, maybe your grandparents, you know, they remember World War II or the Great Depression. They were frugal and resourceful and resilient. They had to be. And I think they bring that to a team. Gratitude, oh my gosh, my dad said, be grateful you have a job even after I started the company. You know, I mean, it was just, there it was. Baby boomers, they're now at retirement age or getting near retirement age. But they bring, I mean, gosh, four decades of stories and experience and coaching. They could be coaches on the team. Gen X, they're in the throes of their career, midlife and just beyond. They uh, grew up as pragmatists. They grew up a little bit more jaded than the boomers were in the 70s, you know. And I think Gen X brings uh, contrarian thoughts Which may be a weird word for your listeners, but just, you know, here's another view, or what if this goes wrong? Mm -hmm. And we do need people doing that. What we do need people that see this could go wrong. Let's fix it first, you know. Millennials, oh my gosh, we've been throwing millennials under the bus for 15 years. And I apologize to every millennial (laughs) listening right now. I believe millennials bring so much energy and hope. And idealism still, even though they've grown up a little bit more, you've grown up more than, you know, You know, mm-hmm. over the last five, 10 years, but still there's this sense of energy that you guys still bring. And then Gen Z behind uh, millennials, they're just now entering the workforce. The first batch are coming in. And I just see, well, I don't know if you know this, but 72% of high school students today want to be an entrepreneur.
0: Hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So they don't want to just join something. They want to start something. Now, will they all succeed? No, they won't. But just that mindset tells me, okay, I should set up a work environment where it feels like a gig economy, where we're starting stuff here and there and we're letting projects pop up and we let some Gen Zers perhaps lead some of those projects. Mm. Um, I see a team that's complete when we put all of those generations to work with their strengths and we let each one play their play their best part. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This this generation isn't necessarily in the workforce yet, but you do talk about generation alpha too, yeah. which really in- yes. intrigued me. Can you talk about generation alpha, what they look like and even just the time, you know, how old they are, things like that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So generation alpha, first of all, people go how can we call them alpha? Well, we went through Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, and so we just went back to the top of the Greek alphabet, so the A or alpha generation. These would be younger children now, really too young to measure in ink. It's all in pencil, if you know what I mean. Yep. But um, these children are already showing some early signs of a couple of things, some good, some not so good. The good is um, we're finding that generation alphas that are seven, eight, nine years old um already are showing deeper levels of empathy and compassion than the previous three generations at that same age now it might be because these young kids are exposed to so much in elementary school Mm -hmm. on the tablet that they've got but um I love this we need to capitalize on this how could we capitalize on these empathetic young kids that might want to make a difference well can I tell a story yeah yep Lucy was in the second grade not long ago And um, she went to an older generation, her mother and her grandmother, and said, would you teach me how to sew? And they went, oh my gosh, of course we will. So she sits down, I love this, her grandmother and, and the granddaughter sit down and Lucy, eight years old, learns how to sew a blanket. And the reason she wanted to do that was she wanted to sew a blanket together for her friend's birthday party. Well, she ends up sewing two blankets together. So she gives one away to her friend, but then she goes to her mother, who's on social media. Lucy's a little too young for social media. And she says, Mom, can you post that we have an extra blanket to give to a family in need? Mm -hmm. And they just ask her responses. Well, they got 16 families responding. We're without any blankets and our heat's turned off. Or we have this need. We have that need. 16 people that needed a blanket. Well, I love this. Instead of choosing one of those families, Lucy said, let's make 15 more blankets. And her mother goes, I love this. So she sits down. And, you know, sewing a blanket, you don't do it in 10 minutes. Mm-mm. This takes time and, and grit. And I I have a hard time telling the story without tears in my eyes. She sews blankets together now. She's made over 1,100 of these blankets and hundreds of masks during the quarantine yeah. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if she represents what we're about to see in 15, 20 years, we're gonna be just fine. Mm-hmm. So I love and believe in the alpha generation. Now, here's one more tidbit that's not so good. Yeah. If you Kayla, if you think about it, if you're five years old, part of the alpha generation, one half of your life has been COVID. So their interpersonal skills are a little bit behind. Their math and reading skills are a little bit behind because, you know, they were trying to learn from home and that was hard for a whole bunch of them. They were meant to socialize. They didn't get to socialize. So I think moms and dads that might be listening or, or, or teachers or coaches we're going to have to really help these kids make up for what we know they can learn, mm. but they might be behind. They're not behind because they're dumb. They're behind because they didn't get to do some things mm. like we did when we were their age. Mm.
0: That even makes me think, and you mentioned it with World War II, what are some of like the historical events that have impacted you know, just the different generations yeah. and how has it impacted them? Oh, I love that question. Thanks for asking
1: <laughs> that. That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, so some of them are obvious. And listeners, I want you just to be thinking, what would I say to that, to that question? So my mom and dad were builder generation people. My dad was born in 1930. So he just died in 2020 at 90 years old. He remembers the Great Depression that was shaping for him, you know, where they had to share a pair of socks between the siblings, you know, and 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 one bike, you know, in the family or whatever. And then World War II. He just, he specifically remembers being very afraid of Adolf Hitler. You know, what if he comes over here? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, Baby boomers, that's my generation. Uh, Baby boomers distinctly remember uh, having to learn to get under their desk at school to practice getting shielded from a nuclear attack in the 50s and 60s. I mean, it was just crazy. You know, back, our biggest threat was a nuclear bomb. I also remember, uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy, died on my fourth birthday. Mm -hmm. And I remember I didn't understand it all, but I went to the TV with all the other adults and I was mad that my birthday party was on hold, but I knew something really sad had just happened. Mm -hmm. There were assassinations that marked my early years. I thought the world might end in 1968, you know. So for Gen X, oh my gosh, they had the Vietnam War in the late 60s. The Watergate scandal in the early 70s, the OPEC gas crisis crisis in the later 70s, Gen X grew grew up a little bit more cynical and skeptical because it was a darker time back then. And even though they were just children, they didn't know that Vietnam was going on or Watergate was happening, but they were being led by grownups who were cynical about leaders back in that day. Mm -hmm. And so they grew up a little bit more cynical themselves, just emulating the adult skepticism. Millennials, are you a millennial? I am. Yep. Okay, I thought so, yeah. So you might remember, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, um, millennials grew up in the 80s and 90s, more or less. Mm-hmm. And um, I, well, I want you to answer this. You are what? What What do you remember that were shaping for you as you became a young man?
0: What would you say? You know, I remember 9-11 very much. And it's, yes. I, I have such a, like I have a similar story to you because I remember... Yeah. That like I had wanted to watch a TV show on 9-11 and I didn't know what was happening, but I just remember going like, I want to watch my TV show and my parent, you know, it just,
1: (laughs) yeah, it was crazy. And as kids. We didn't know any better, but we looked around us and thought everybody's watching the news. What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, and then I remember the financial crisis just a little bit, um, But those yeah. are those are really the two big things that come those to mind. Those make sense. Yep. Yeah, those. You were a young man,
1: so for Gen Z, these kids really only remember the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So they would remember the smartphone that was part of their growing up. You grew up with a cell phone. They grew up with a smartphone. Yeah, you know that yep. was the game changer. Uh, they would probably remember. Um, The early days where we began to see mass shootings. You know, this Mm, is so mm -hmm. normal today. I'm so sad about this. And the normalization of anxiety. Mm -hmm. You know, mental health issues are gigantic for Gen Z. This has just been normalized. So I'm I'm a bit sad for not all, but some of Gen Z's shaping moments because it's just been harder. Mm. Uh, Since 2001, there have been three economic downturns. So even though they don't remember all of them, they remember the grownups going, wow, life sucks. You know, what what's going on here? And, and so um, it just gives me greater empathy for each generation as I remember what shaped them and mm. what might have marked the way they think.
0: Mm. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you. What do you think is like an unappreciated part of each generation? And to go along with that, like a part that unless you're part of that generation, you just don't think about.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. I would say for I would say for the builder generation, that would be my parents, your grandparents perhaps. Mm-hmm. yep. I would say we didn't realize the power that they showed us of gratitude. My mom and dad were just so grateful for simple little things, you know. Um, this may shock you, but when I was growing up, my mother, who was who grew up during the 30s, Uh, We would use our napkins at mealtime and she'd put them on the clothesline and we'd let them dry out so we could use them the next meal. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was just she was so grateful for any little thing. And I I miss that. I I think our generation, all of us would do better with the gratitude over little things rather than feeling like we're entitled to all these little things. Because, you know, I'm alive, you know. So boomers, I think the boomers uh, have an unappreciated addition of I mentioned this already, but of stories, um, I feel like I've lived through. Well, my career has been going on 40 years now, so I do have 40 years of stories, and often can cite an example of a similar time in my growing up years to today, and say, "Here's what we learned back then that we might be able to repurpose right now." I think that's helpful. I hope it's helpful. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not just a history teacher to my team. I can say, "Here's what we picked up that mm-hmm. we don't have to repeat." You know that lesson um i think for xers i really think we don't fully appreciate their pragmatism meaning they're really practical at seeing the other side of the coin not just everything's awesome uh so the millennials were accused of everything's awesome you know that was an overused word for 20 years i think gen x would go not everything is awesome you know don't forget this or that. And even though nobody loves that wet blanket being thrown onto the party or whatever, I feel like we often need somebody on our team that goes, let's let's take care of this problem before it gets too big. I I know I need that. Mm-hmm. So and then I would say, um, I would say uh millennials, you guys, I think that um I am now just now appreciating. The hope and the um, energy Hmm. that millennials bring, probably part of which is just because you're still younger, you know, you're before 40 or 45 years old. Um, And I love that our team has so many fun millennials that turn up the fun on our team. I would miss it if they weren't around, you know, Uh, I want to do it, but I'm too old to start it now, you know, that sort of thing. (laughs) So I love that. And I know I'm stereotyping, by the way, one thing I say in the book, Caleb, the goal is not to stereotype, but to understand. I love that. The goal is not to stereotype, but to understand that's what we got to do. And then one last one, Gen Z. I think Gen Z really has figured out a way to live their life where they hack their way through. Problem solving, like they'll get behind the system and find out how it works. Many of them were accused of cheating during the quarantine because they knew Zoom better than the teacher did and they found a way to cheat on the test. And they were going, man, if I can figure this out, and you don't know I'm doing it, why not do it? You know, and <laughs> I know that's not right, but they they know how to hack their way through life. And that's gonna pay off if we can redirect it into um good honest ways of hacking yeah. that could be really powerful so mm. I think we need to find those and, yeah. and celebrate you know, them.
0: You you mentioned the stories part for your generation. And I just yeah. was curious do you think that's something like specific to your generation or do you think that's something that like as you know the Xers and us millennials yeah. get older is that something that do you think will become more common for each generation?
1: Absol- absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I do think people when they finally reach you know 60, 65 or 70 have just an accumulation of stories that have happened because life does cycle through and we Mm -hmm. just we all have ups. We all have downs. I love, Caleb, what Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not an identical replication, but there is a rhyming to 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 history And so, um, I, I feel like we need to pay attention to the stories that every generation when they become a certain age has to share.
0: Mm. Yeah. And that even makes me think, you know, a lot of what you get into is how the generations can work together. Yeah. And so do you think it's as simple as like literally just asking, you know, the generations who are older than you, like, have you faced a situation like this or, or how would you recommend like asking for those stories? I think so.
1: I think most people that are over 40 or over 45 love to be asked that question. Mm -hmm. Now, watch out. We may share for 30 minutes nonstop (laughs) like I am right now, you know, but um, I do think so. But you know what? Here's what I find myself saying as I teach on the subject to, you know, Fortune 500 companies or schools or or nonprofit groups. There are three soft skills that if we will bring these to the table, we will always lubricate the friction between (laughs) generations. Number one is humility. If I will approach my relationship, let's say with you as a millennial, rather than saying, ah, you're too young, to know anything. But if I say, I'm gonna be humble and know that Caleb probably has some things to share with me because he picked it up growing up in a very different time than I did. Oh my gosh, that humility has been a game changer in my relationship with my own two children who are both millennials so humility is number 1 uh number 2 is respect i know that's an old fashioned word thank you aretha franklin you know but i i just believe if i will give respect before i make somebody earn it i respect that 22 year old in the office or that 30 year old in the office and they see that author tim elmore is is respecting them Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like they're, they're blown away in a really wonderful way. Mm -hmm. So number two is respect. Number three is curiosity. Think about it. If we all stay curious about what's left to be learned or what we don't know, or what's going on over there, you know, oh my gosh, I can learn from you and you can learn from me. So can I tell you the word I've been using? Chip Conley first came up with this word. I love it. It's called Mentor. Mm. I want to be a Mentor. I'm both oh. a Mentor and an Intern at the same time, you know? And isn't it true? I got insights to teach and I got insights to learn along the way.
0: Mm. Yeah. I'd love to hear from you. What's what's a story or two that you love sharing with people Like pa- that passes on a lesson?
1: Oh, wow. Well, um, I could share 50 and I promise <laughs> I won't. But one that comes to my mind... Um, I think that early on, skills were built in me that I didn't even know I needed, but someone came alongside me and pushed me just a bit. So uh, when I was 17 years old, still clearly wet behind the ears, Sean Mitchell walked into my life. He um, He was on our public high school campus, and he was a former football player, and he was really cool. So I met this guy, really liked him. And he told a group of us that he was starting an outreach on Friday night where we would reach at risk kids. So I said, man, I'd love to help. And so he said, I want you to help me. So every Friday night, what we, what we would do, Caleb, is we'd show this really great movie that had kind of a life principle in it. And then after the movie was over, Sean would get up and speak and he'd kind of unpack that principle. So we all had a takeaway. Mm -hmm. And he was a dynamic communicator still is to this day. Well, I was 17 years old. So I was setting up chairs, holding his coat and getting him water, you know? Well, I would say about, I don't know, five or six or seven weeks into this Friday night outreach, Sean meets me backstage and says in a very raspy voice, he says, Tim, I don't think I'm going to be able to speak tonight. Something's up here. I think we're going to need you to speak tonight. And I said, Sean, I can't speak. I, I hold your coat. I get your water. You know, <laughs> and I, I just did not see myself as the speaker. Well, he insisted. Who's going to do it if you don't? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that night, Caleb, for the first time, I get his notes. I look them over and I go on. We traded places that night. This very sharp, dynamic communicator sits in the front row, cheers me on. I get up with my knees knocking and sweat beating up on my forehead, you know, and I make my way through my talk. When I get done, Sean rushes up, gives me a big old bear hug and says, Tim, that was great. From now on, we're going to switch off. We're going to rotate. You'll I'll be on one week. You'll be on the next. And thanks to Sean Mitchell, I've been communicating on a regular basis ever since I was 17 years old. Hmm. Now, here's the cool part about this story. I mean, that's already cool to me, but a few years ago, Sean and I met as adults and just kind of reminisced over dinner about that Friday night outreach and so forth. And suddenly the first night that I got up to speak came up in the conversation and Sean began to look at the floor. He couldn't give me any eye contact. I said, Sean, what's wrong? And when he finally mustered up the courage, he looked at me and he goes, Tim, I have a confession to make. I did not have laryngitis that night. He said, I made it up. He said, but it was the only way I knew I could get you up front to speak because you would always depend on me if I was able. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, I wanted to slap him in the face right then and there, you know, but I tell you what, it was, I look back and I go, thank God that Sean's goal that night was not to get the best speaker up in front of the crowd. If that was his goal, he would have been up to speak. Mm -hmm. His goal was to help this young guy named Tim Elmore get up and speak. And uh, so I'm still grateful for him to this day. That's a story I love telling
0: because I think it needs to be replicated over and over and over again. Mm. That even makes me think of probably one of the, the, the challenges that can come with this of working intergenerationally is the temptation to give the perfect speech or give yes. the perfect message yeah. instead of developing the next generation. Can you talk yes. just about that tension? Yeah,
1: uh, it's, it's so real. And I think it's very big in my generation right now you remember when we last talked on this podcast we talked about the eight paradoxes and one of them is great leaders are both visible and invisible meaning they know when the time has come that they need to be visible and set the example model the way and show everybody else what it's supposed to look like but then there needs to come a time where we step back and become invisible and let that young leader step up and they'll never step up if we're in the room because they go well i should defer to you dr elmore so um i call this the joshua problem caleb Mm -hmm. the joshua problem it's one of our habitudes you know this but habitudes are images that form leadership habits and attitudes so the image of the joshua problem of course it goes way back in history most people that are listening know that the greatest jewish leader in the world who lived four thousand years ago was a guy named moses we've all heard of moses right Mm -hmm. moses felt called to lead the people of israel across the desert into the promised land. Well, he didn't finish the job. But fortunately, he'd been pouring into a next generation leader called Joshua, who when Moses passes away, Joshua takes the reins of leadership, crosses the Jordan River, and city by city by city, he begins to take the promised land. The problem is, Joshua never had a Joshua. Mm-hmm. If you read the pages of the pentateuch you know the early old testament scripture you see that joshua never returned the favor that moses had done for him he never reached back and found a 20 year old young guy or whatever and poured into him and here's what's sad when joshua dies the nation of israel went into the worst period of her history it was called the period of the judges Mm -hmm. where twice we read in the book of judges and there was no king in israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes it was chaos. And so I, I'm just, I'm yeah. preaching to the choir right now. You yeah. totally get this, but <laughs> we've got to step back. And my generation is so holding on to power right now. Hmm. I'm afraid too many times. And we need to let go and say, they may not do it perfect
0: the first time around, but it's better to train a leader than to do it myself right now. Hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other challenges that you see that occur between generations? Well, I see four big ones. Yeah. One is stereotyping.
1: I've already mentioned that. It Isn't it easy to just stereotype? Like I could look at millennials. Ah, oh, millennials, those are narcissistic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You guys have been oh, yeah. called narcissistic yep. forever. And yet you and I both know there may be a few, but they're not all narcissistic. Mm-hmm. My goodness gracious. So I think stereotyping is a major, major problem. Here's another glitch. I think we see ego every one of us, despite our generation, has a little bit of ego. And when we feel like we're not being appreciated or we have to insert ourselves or whatever, an ego blinds us from seeing the value of another generation. A third one, if I can just get honest with you, is laziness. I think it is work to build a relationship with someone from another generation, at least a little bit more work than it is another boomer. Okay. So, it's called chronocentricism. We all tend to see the chronology of life that we're in. And we find other people like us. Mm -hmm. Think Think about Thanksgiving that's coming up here. You know, the family gets together and everybody says hi and they hug each other. But then the children get with the children. The teenagers get with the teenagers. The old folks get with the old folks. Isn't it true? Yep. Because it's easier. So the analogy I use in the book is, It feels like a cross-cultural interaction that requires work when I talk to another generation. Just like when we fly over to Germany and I get off that plane and I know I'm going to have to work harder to connect with people over here because they speak a different language. They have different customs. They speak a different language. Ditto. Hmm. I've got to get psyched up to work harder because different customs, different language. (laughs) So anyway, I think laziness just, we don't want to do the work. It's easier to stereotype and take those mental shortcuts. The last one I would give you that I think we mm-hmm. gotta overcome is is that disrespect thing. I, I, I mentioned this earlier, so I won't go long, but I just don't think we respect each other. Um, I find myself, when I teach on this, I continue to find myself saying, our world is now divided into us and them. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of us and them. Let's just have us. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could mm-hmm. just have us I, yeah. I just long for that. And, and that's what this book is supposed to push us to. It's an encyclopedia that helps us get to us yeah. instead of us and them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I do want to talk about what we can do to bridge the generation, but I do have yes. one other question okay. uh, to right. tease out. And I would love to ask, you know, we've, we've talked about what is generally the problem generation to generation. I would yeah. love to have, or I would love to ask you, what do you think is like maybe the biggest challenge or thing to overcome for each generation you know you mentioned millennials Uh, ah yeah everything is awesome you know the tendency to be positive all the time you know can you kind of go through that for the generations yeah that's a great question um let
1: me do some noodling on that for a second i i feel like let me start with the boomers because we're kind of the mostly the oldest in the workplace I think for us, it really is that the concrete is dry now (laughs) Mm -hmm. and our neural pathways are are set and it's very difficult for us to to change. Can I tell a quick story on exactly how this looks? So in the book, I talk about Tony Palosino. Tony graduated from college about a year and a half ago and um, he was at Ohio University and he worked a part-time job while he was in college at a major paint brand store, okay? Worked part-time, but while he was there, he started a TikTok account, and he started mixing paint and videotaping himself and posting on, on TikTok. Well, he went viral. He got 1.4 million followers and 37 million views. So, I mean, he's got something here. Mm-hmm. He's doing creative things like mixing paint and putting blueberries in white paint and mixing it up, and he's just really zany. Well. After he got a, you know, 1.4 million followers, he thought, "Oh my gosh, I should show this to the executives here at this retail brand and maybe they could monetize this, you know?" So he puts a slide deck together to make a presentation, takes it to the management, and Tony does not get one leader interested in talking to him. Doesn't get one sh- set of eyes to look at that slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. Tony got fired. He gets fired because they think this young whippersnapper, you know, stealing the paint, you know, or distracting to the customers or he's probably doing this on company time. You know, all the things we say to you guys, you know. Well, Tony wasn't, but they thought he did. So get this. Tony leaves Ohio, moves down to Florida, now has two million followers and has started his own paint store. So I think I'm safe to say that while there may be many parts to this story we don't understand, mm-hmm. one thing we do understand: they missed an opportunity. Yep. Okay, so that's the problem with the older generation. We yep. kind of get set and we don't change. For Gen X, I think Gen X can be a little bit cynical, and that can be harmful. Uh, think about you guys as the next younger generation. If you got a boss that's Gen Xer, that's 52 years old or whatever. But they always go, that won't work, that won't work. We tried that, it didn't work. It's kind of deflating, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we have to watch, or Gen X would have to watch that we don't just find ourselves cynical all the time thinking that's never going to work when you guys might find a way to make it work. Yeah. Uh, For millennials, what you need to watch out for, uh, there's probably many answers and you might be able to answer (laughs) this better. I'd like to get your feedback, but mine is, I think I see naivete a little bit in millennials, just being a little bit naive, you know, because you are young, you're still young mm-hmm. and, you know, you haven't been through 30 years of work and you might go, oh, this would be awesome. And maybe you ought to hear someone say, well, watch out for this. Mm-hmm. And they're not a wet blanket. They're actually sharing some important no. information. What would you say, though, to that? when you think about your generation?
0: Yeah, I I definitely would say the naiveness of it of just yeah. thinking that things aren't going to be as hard as they're yeah. going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because, like, because unless you've had like something, you probably haven't had like a ton of like really hard things in life yeah. as a millennial. That typically happens as <clears throat> you get older. Um, yeah. And so you don't realize how hard life is, and so I would say um, that. And I think what you were right about of like that everything is awesome or everything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, That can happen. And certainly you and I are not stereotyping. Excuse me. (coughs) Sorry.
0: No worries.
1: We're not not stereotyping, but you're right. That can happen. And then I think for Gen Z, I don't think uh, the the data on Generation Z does not say that they are immoral, but it does seem to point to the fact that they're amoral. Mm-hmm. Meaning they're so pragmatic, just do whatever it takes to get it to work, that they might do something that's unethical, just thinking, hey, do what you got to do, you know, to get to the goal. And again, don't mean to stereotype, not all Gen mm-hmm. Zers are like this, but um, there was a sociologist at Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame, that uh, published a book on ethics for generations. He said three out of four college students admit to cheating to get through college. Three out of four, mm-hmm. not one out of ten. So um, that's troublesome because yeah. these people will be leading companies in twenty years, and yeah. we need to make sure we don't we don't uh, allow that to happen. So anyway, but but like I said, something with every one of us yeah. we need to grow through, and we can
0: help each other. I think. Yeah. Talk to me about how you lead someone th- with that amoralness or that pragmatism to wherever it's just like, yeah. yep, you know, a little bit of ends justify the means. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I have come to conclude, at least in my
1: life, that there are um, relative truths and absolute truths. Mm -hmm. You probably heard most of those terms. But I think sometimes uh, an 18-year-old, for instance, may not understand that some things are changeable and it doesn't matter. There are facts that change, but then there's some other facts or truths that shouldn't change that you need to keep those in place. They're not antiquated, they're timeless. Mm-hmm. So here's an example. Uh, we drive on the right-hand side of the road in our country. That's a fact, that's a truth. You go to England, that's not the truth. Yep. You know, We drive on the other side. So that would be a relative truth. However, I think honesty, that's an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. All generations of any time are gonna do better when we're honest with one another. You you would agree, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yep. So I, I think that um that would be one answer to the question is to point out to them. There are relative truths. I'm not trying to say you need to do everything my way, young man or young woman, but just know some things are relative mm-hmm. and they can change and we can flex and adapt. But other things we need to figure out what the absolute truths are and cling to those because they are timeless. Learn them from grandma and grandpa and pass them on to your grandkids. That's what I would say.
0: Yeah. I know that you probably investigated and learned from a ton of different organizations for this book over the years. I'd yeah. love to hear you know, just a just a really, um, a story that really impacted you about an organization that you were like, wow, they did this or they were really good at like bridging the generational yeah. gap.
1: Yeah, great question. I keep saying that. You keep asking great <laughs> questions. <Caleb. laughs> Well, I'll tell you a story that I tell in the book that I really felt like was um, a learning point for me. Yeah. So it was a retail fast food restaurant. OK, I'll, I'll have them remain nameless because <laughs> uh, I didn't get their permission here to talk about this. But um, Maggie was the hiring manager and she was interviewing young job candidates. OK, so, you know, 16 to 24 years old. Antonio is a young man that comes in to interview for a job. Uh, They get along really well. Antonio interviews very well. He has some experience. Uh, So Maggie goes through all of the policies of the restaurant and she hires him. Antonio starts working. He's working at the cash register. And about three weeks into his tenure at this restaurant, uh, he's got a short sleeve shirt on with his uniform. Mm -hmm. And she notices a tattoo on his right arm. Well, not the end of the world, except that that's against the policy of this restaurant. Mm. And she was very clear that that was against the policy. So she's kind of frustrated that he wasn't honest with her. But when she confronts him in the back room, you know, hey, Antonio, why weren't you honest with me? I saw a tattoo. He thinks she's questioning his very identity Mm. because to him, the tattoo is a part of his identity, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can see both sides. You know, now you're questioning my very identity. Well, they have a little come-to-Jesus meeting, and it doesn't go very well. So they end up ending the meeting, and they don't have it resolved. But they ended up meeting two more times, and there were some great lessons to be learned as they continued to lean into each other and find the answer in the middle. And here's what they did. By meeting number three, Maggie calls Antonio into the office, and he's not real happy because he's thinking she's going to force him to Remove his tattoo or fire him. You know, he's afraid he's going to get fired. Here's what Maggie does that's brilliant. She goes, Antonio, I don't want to lose you. You're a great team member. Everybody loves working with you. I don't want to lose you. However, you do know you went against policy. And if I just let this go, everybody else is going to go, hey, do whatever you want. Maggie's not going to force anything. You know, you can see the problem. Mm -hmm. So Maggie said, would you agree with me? that we're gonna get in front of the team, we're both going to confess what's happened, apologize, and then you're gonna wear a long sleeve shirt to work every single time you do your shift. Well, that's exactly what happened. They both get in front of the team, they both confess what happened, Antonio apologizes to everybody, and they both you know shake hands, actually they gave a hug to each other, standing ovation from everybody at the place. And I thought, Maggie, What great leadership that you found a place to meet in the middle. And by the way, you'll enjoy this. She ends up calling corporate office and says, Hey, we may want to rethink our policy on the tattoos, you know, (laughs) which was a great, I'm speaking on behalf of my team. So I think if more and more leaders will find a way to flex without giving up all their morals and values, we
0: may have a winner uh, on our teams. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about, you know, another practice that might help us bridge the generational gap. Well, I practice
1: in my office with my team reverse mentoring.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I don't know if we talked about that in our We did, last but go ahead and explain okay. what it okay, is. Okay, it's yeah. really fun. So, reverse mentoring is something Jack Welch came up with way back in the 90s, but here's what I here's how I do it. We encourage older and younger generations to get together um, we love, uh, Chip Conley's language, modern elders and young geniuses. Mm-hmm. That's what we got. Modern yeah. elders, young geniuses. We get them together and we say swap stories, everything. You can always find something in common when you swap stories. If you and I talk long enough, we probably find a lot of things we got yep. in common.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, even though we're from different generations, but then the older generation person is, sh- will might share Here's how to succeed at this organization. I've learned a few things over the years. This might help you accelerate your learning. But then that older generation person takes off the mentor hat, puts on the learning hat, that intern hat, and says, now, would you mentor me in technology or you know the latest app you just bought and how we might be able to use it for marketing or something like that? Mm-hmm. I'm doing this with Andrew right now on a regular basis. Andrew is 30 years younger than me. We have a blast every single time I meet. We laugh. We both learn. We are both mentors with each other. And it's so much fun. And it's really helped our team a lot as we've done this across the growing leaders team. Mm.
0: Talk to me about a thing or two you've learned recently from Andrew. Andrew.
1: Well, he's teaching me more and more about keynote slides on on Mac computers, you know that <laughs> sort of thing. And I'm using I've used uh, keynote for a long time, but Andrew is so magical with what he's learned and how he picks it up. He's just intuitive, and I'm not with that. So that would be one. And then Cam is a 22 year old we have on our team. He's really helping me with some of the apps that have come out that I just naturally don't go to. I'm still watching television, you know, or whatever, when he's on an app. So those would be probably predictable, but they're sure helping me along the way. And the best thing I can bring to the table is a teachable spirit. Mm. Yeah.
0: Another big idea that you talk about in the book is you talk about, you know, that it's important for us to increase our social and emotional learning Yes. as well. Can you just unpack what that is a little bit and how we can go about increasing it? Yeah. Social
1: intelligence and emotional intelligence are absolutely huge. It would be difficult to overestimate the power of your EQ, your, Mm -hmm. your emotional intelligence. So let me make a statement that I think might be helpful, helpful to your listeners. Uh, Technical skills depreciate with time. Meaning if you learn how to do a skill 10 years ago, it's probably going to go away soon. You know, we Mm -hmm. we just do things differently. Social skills appreciate over time, meaning they get more and more valuable with time. So one of the stories I tell in the book uh, is about Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes, he uh, was in Iraq several years ago, and it was at the time when the Allied forces were sending over food and blankets and clothes to the displaced Iraqis who were finding refuge in new villages to get away from the Taliban. And they needed food and clothes and blankets. Well, Hughes, the commanding officer, began thinking, what would be the best place to pass these out to these people here that probably don't trust Americans? And he thought probably it would be at the local mosque. So I'll talk to the cleric, you know, at the Muslim mosque here and see if he'd be willing to be the distribution center. Well, the the cleric agreed. And so get this now, Hughes marches with his troops right down Main Street, you know, with a package on one shoulder, a rifle on the other. Well, you can imagine what this looks like to everybody in that village. They're thinking, you're about to bomb the mosque because they knew exactly where they were going. Mm -hmm. So by the time they get there, Caleb, it was surrounded. The mosque was surrounded by locals with sticks and rocks and they are ready for a street fight. Well, I love the emotional intelligence that Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes exhibited in that moment. He orders his troops to stop about 150 feet away. So they're far enough away that they're not right there. And then he orders his troops to put their packages on the ground and to point their guns toward the ground. Mm -hmm. And then he instructs his troops to take a knee, an extremely vulnerable position in public when you got a bunch of people with sticks and rocks in front of you. And then he orders his troops to look up into the faces of these people and smile. Well, one by one, these locals began to drop their sticks and their rocks uh, and they smiled back. And that gave Hughes enough time to find somebody that spoke the local dialect to come forward and explain what they were doing. And the disaster was averted. Well, let me tell you what I think about that story. I love that story, by the way. I think Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Hughes did not read that on page 54 of the army manual. He was an emotionally intelligent person Mm -hmm. that read the nuances of the moment. And he read the people before he led the people. That's what I want to ring into the ears of listeners right now. Read your people before you lead your people. Mm -hmm. And because he did, he knew exactly what to do intuitively. And that's what emotional intelligence is. We've got to build this into our, our, our leadership and our, our team membership, uh, whether you're a leader or not, we just all need to be better with social interactions mm-hmm. with each other.
0: Yeah. What's helped you get better at that?
1: I think learning to listen better. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm doing uh, this year, I, I think I shared it last time we were learning. It's the same assignment I've given myself this yeah. year. When I'm in a meeting with other people, I want to speak as if I believe I'm right. hmm but I want to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. That has been a game changer with my own adult children, with team members who are 20 somethings or 30 somethings. So um, that would be
0: one action step. Anybody could take
1: speak as if you believe you're right. Listen as if you believe you're wrong.
0: Hmm. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you about, but before that, I know that we've covered a ton of stuff. Is there anything just top of mind regarding what we've talked about Yeah, in the book that you want to make sure that we cover or mention?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is a free assessment that I'd love everybody to take because it's free. You don't have to pay a thing. But it goes with a book. We called it, and you're going to like this, the GQ. (laughs) So we just talked about EQ. This is the GQ. (laughs) It's your generational quotient. So this 41-question test that you can go online and take, Uh, will tell you, here's how well you do with Gen Z. Here's millennials, Xers, boomers. It will give you your fluency with each generation. And then you get a report on, here's some steps you could take to better connect with Gen Z or better with boomers or better with Xers or better with millennials. So I'd love it. Um, Yeah, you know what, listeners, if you just go to newdiversitybook.com, newdiversitybook.com, you can get that free assessment. And of course, you can order the book too. Um, uh, but that, that might be a really fun assessment for people to take and just kind of get started on the journey.
0: Yeah. Well, the last idea that you write about in there that I would love to ask you about is you, you introduced me to the topic of, uh, post figurative societies, configurative societies yeah. and pre configurative societies. Yes. Can you unpack just that idea?
1: Yeah. If this is brilliant stuff. So, um, Uh, These are terms that were first introduced about 50 years ago. Um, The terms mean that we have gone through different eras in human history where we do things differently in each era. And you and I now live in the pre-configurative era. So Mm -hmm. um, basically, the post-figurative era was way back thousands of years ago, so millenniums ago, where – The kids of that day, or the young people of that day, learned everything post the adults. Hmm. In fact, it was the adults that taught everything to the kids. Here's the customs you must learn. Here are the traditions you must learn. Uh, By the way, you know this. Your mother and father arranged the marriage you were about to have. You didn't get to choose. They chose. Hmm. Your career was kind of chosen for you. If you're a boy, you did what your daddy did. If you're a girl, you did what your mama did and you just perpetuated the customs over and over and over and over and over, over, generation after generation. Then we moved to the co-figurative era. This was with the dawn of the enlightenment and the industrial revolution, where now we could read, the the printed book was out, and both all generations were learning from reading. You didn't need an adult for information. So in the co-figurative society, the emerging generation and the established generation were learning together and reason ruled the day. So you could rationalize. You might get to rationalize who your wife was because you could talk to dad and mom and go, <laughs> I don't like that one. I like this one, you know. So here's a great example of this. Our nation was born during the cofigurative era. Mm. Finish the sentence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, self-evident. This is reasonable. You should understand this. You would have never said that back in the post-figurative era. You just did what your mom and dad did. Mm-hmm. So you see how that works? Yep. So today in the 21st century, we now live in what Margaret Mead called, she was the anthropologist that did this, In what Margaret Mead called the pre-figurative era. And here's what she was basically saying. Because change is happening so rapidly and technology is introduced so quickly and uh, you know into our world mm-hmm. the young are figuring it out faster than the old mm-hmm. i feel that way so my son and daughter don't need me for information and you know you know what i am saying. this oh, is yeah. all this all makes yeah. sense this is why old and young ought to listen to each other the young people need the timeless stuff from mm-hmm. the older generation but the old generation needs the timely stuff yeah. from the younger generation, which goes back to those paradoxes. Yep. So anyway, yep. that's the big idea. And I just feel like it's a reason why we need to do this new kind of diversity better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, any final word
0: before we end our
1: time? Well, I love hanging out with you. Thanks for all the great questions you made me think. Um, just, I would just love to encourage people. If this sounds interesting, if this has been intriguing, newdiversitybook.com would be how to find all the free stuff. And then the book, of course you can get it there. And then that assessment, I hope it's a helpful encyclopedia for you as you navigate relationships in the future.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thanks Caleb for having me on. So coming out of that conversation, there's really two things that it made me think about. One of the things that I have been thinking about recently a lot is the importance of the older generation taking the initiative in terms of reaching out to people who are maybe younger than them, or in some case it could be older than them, I guess, but just the importance of taking the initiative and helping other people who may not know as much as you and and not necessarily always waiting for someone to, to ask for help, but just making yourself available to help being the kind of a person being approachable so that people feel like they can ask you for help. And in some cases, which was the case for me of just taking the initiative and someone saying, Hey, I see something in you and I want to help develop it in you and grow you. And just learn from from them by just seeing how they do life and asking them questions of how they handled certain situations. And for me, that's been some of the best mentors in my life who have done that for me. They've just listened to what's happening in my life. And, they, and I just ask them, well, tell me what you think on this situation. Can you help me? Can you guide me in that? And one of the things that I've been thinking about Again, I'm not. <laughs> I'm still considered young by many people, you know, in that millenn- in being a millennial. But realizing that there are people who are asking for help and trying to figure out how how I can go about and do that as well. And so that's the thing that it's got me thinking about of how I can take the initiative in those efforts. And so, yeah, that's, that's what got me thinking about this conversation with, with Tim. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the newsletter and you can keep up with many other things that I'm learning about and many of the things that I'm learning from as well. And I send it out and again, it's right in the show notes. I send it out each week of some of the different things that I'm learning about and it'll go right into your inbox. And I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Tim Elmore for being on the podcast today. And if you enjoyed this conversation, check out our previous episode, or our previous conversation, which I'll link to in the show notes as well. Thanks to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. And Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.